talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Willerskin is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. This weekend, our neighborhood was overrun by plenty of rain and less rolling thunder. Here's Scott Thompson! It's Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Let's start the show uh, away from Earth. And uh, then we'll slowly bring it back down over the course of the afternoon. But, you know, uh, Paul Delaney uh, from York University and I have talked about this, and he's been great enough to join us for years on the show and talk about uh, and enlighten us on uh, the journey in space and such. But we've talked about the politics, which the great thing is up in the International Space Station, hopefully they're high enough above uh, the world that they don't get too involved. But now it is starting to affect the space program in the sense that Russia is threatening to pull out. Three Americans, an Italian astronaut, Dr. The space station on Wednesday, joining three other Americans, three Germans, sorry, a German, and three Russians to talk more about all of this. And boy, where do we go from here? Uh, joining us is Paul Delaney uh, from York University, a professor there, uh, from, retired now. Paul, thanks for taking the time. I hope you're doing well. I am indeed, Scott. Nice to be with you as always. <laughs> Now, I know you're not a retired political science professor, but it seems <laughs> the, the lines are getting blurry here. We've talked about this. What has happened? And is this about politics or just money? It's primarily politics. Uh, Rogozin, who is the uh, director of the Russian Space Federation, has come out again and said on Sunday, we're out of here. Uh, and we're out of here as in sometime in the next year, we're going to sort of back away with our Soyuz and you know, leave the International Space Station Consortium. A couple of takeaway points. One, Rogozin has uh, shot from the hip before, and so there's no guarantee that this is the reality of the situation, although the statements sound a little bit more determined this time than they have over the last couple of months. And secondly, even if they do pull out, the question is, do they pull their hardware out or do they just pull their cosmonauts out? And there's a big difference there between the impact on the International Space Station. So it's really still very unclear until we get a definitive letter that NASA holds up to the press conference and says, well, this is it. Uh, I'm not convinced that the Russian Space Federation still is wanting to really remove themselves. So in other words, if you want to make this call, you better be, be prepared for the long term. So either you're out and you're out for a while or you're or you're not. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you, you can't keep coming out every three or four weeks and yeah. say, you know, we want out. You know, you guys aren't doing the right thing. International sanctions, it sh- the, in- the ISS should be independent of all that and so on and so forth. He said that at least twice since the invasion of the Ukraine. Uh, he's often in the past few years made some rather quarrelsome statements. He's got a bit of a few going with Scott Kelly, a former uh, NASA astronaut and so on. So it is a little blurry. But as I said, you know, it does sound a little bit more definitive this time. But until I actually see it in writing uh, that, you know, you hold up and, and so on, I'm not convinced that Russia really does want to pull out. They've got a lot invested in the ISS. To pull away, I think, hurts them more than it hurts anybody else. 
We remember uh, before SpaceX that it was it, the Russians, uh, the Soyuz, that would fly the astronauts up and back, including Canadians, Americans, everybody, uh, Hatfield being a commander of that. Now that they have SpaceX, does that matter now if the Russians are involved? Well, it does. Uh, I mean, if this had happened, say, three, four, five years ago, it would have been devastating as far as the consortium is concerned, because the Soyuz, the Russian vehicle, was the only show in town. That is no longer the case. SpaceX flies to and fro the International Space Station quite readily. And if all goes well, Boeing's Starliner should start flying to the International Space Station within a year. They flew to the uh, low Earth orbit about two years or so ago with a variety of problems that they believe they have corrected. The first demonstration flight is later this year. So NASA could, within this calendar year, have two options to fly to the International Space Station. It certainly weakens Russia's uh, uh, hold, shall I say, political hold over the ISS. Can Russia afford to do this? Because obviously this is expensive. And now with sanctions in the in the state that their country is in as a result of invading Ukraine, can they afford to put money towards a space program? Uh, as far as I can tell, money isn't on the table as far as Putin is concerned. It's mm. ideology. And of course, he's calling the shots as far as the Russian Space Federation is concerned. So, you know, what the 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 game plan really is it's very unclear russia may not be able to afford to pull out but uh, idealistically they want to pull out because of course of the international pressure that is on them the question from the iss consortium's perspective is will russia pull their hardware out because at this point in time the way iss stays in orbit is with the engines that are on their uh, uh, Zarya and Zvezda modules. That's the way ISS doesn't fall out of orbit. If the hardware backs out, I'm actually not sure whether or not all the pieces connect up properly uh, that would allow, say, for example, a Dragon spacecraft to maintain that boosting capability. So it really is very unclear whether or not uh, Russia pulling out marks the end of the ISS or just, shall I say, a new chapter in the history of ISS. So theoretically, Paul, they could like strip this thing on the way out. I mean, I have this vision of that. You know, you keep talking about the school bus in the sky. I keep have this uh, this vision of a school bus in the sky, and now it's got like no wheels on it. I mean, is that possible? I actually don't know the direct answer. Certainly, yeah. at this point in time, pulling out the Russian hardware assets on ISS could mark the end of the ISS. I just am not enough of a structural engineer to know, can we keep the pieces together? Certainly life support, power, the the, the, uh, solar panels, all of that is fine. But whether or not structurally it is still maintainable with uh, a Dragon spacecraft doing the pushing, shall I say, the engines, I just don't know the answer to that. Or is it worth it at this point, Paul, when it's towards the latter part of its life? Is it worth retooling? Well, that's the other question. Uh, you know, we've got eight years left before NASA had said that they want to pull out. But I think I've said to you that it wouldn't at all surprise me if commercial entities decided to buy NASA out in 2030 and take over the ISS, assuming it is structurally still sound. And at the moment it is. So there are a lot of differing ways this could play out. If Russia pulls its hardware and obviously its cosmonauts out, and the International Consortium is left to fend for itself. 
I suspect that NASA will find a way to keep the ISS operational, especially with SpaceX and Boeing's capabilities now. Hmm. Uh, when politics and science meets, uh, Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus, Astronomy, York University, Russia, contemplating uh, pulling out of the International Space Station program. Paul, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You bet, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Very, very sad news uh, over the course of the weekend when we learned that Naomi Judd of uh, the mother and daughter duo, the Judds, who infamous country music. I mean, my goodness, uh, single after single after single, hit after hit after hit, passes away at the age of 76, uh, hours before she was to be honored uh, and inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. And what was even more fascinating was the delicacy in which the daughters handled this and saying that their mother died from mental illness. Let's bring in Eric Elper, music publicist and commentator. He is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, everything's all right. How are you? Not too bad. Boy, a lot of people surprised at this. We knew Naomi was struggling uh, and had issues over the years and such. Uh, What do we know, especially the way the, the sisters made this announcement? Yeah, especially because, you know, for country music band that have followed at least the health aspects of Naomi. Um, in 1991, she was diagnosed with hepatitis C, and that was the main reason why they stopped performing, along with the fact that Winona kind of wanted to go off on her own anyway. But this simply sped up that cause a little bit. Winona then had a solo career from 1992 onwards and had a lot of, you know, reuniting with her mother um but this one it was really sad because of the way and because of the language um that they that they revealed that she passed away from the disease of mental health now that's really fascinating not only to uh, you know somebody like me that works in the music industry and language is super important the way that that we want to reveal um information but also as the father of an 18-year-old daughter, that mental health is such a big deal to them. It is so out in the open compared to what you and I used to you know, hear about and talk yeah. about, which was nil. Um, the fact that she... Um, that Naomi was so open with her struggles with mental health, her depression, her, she's wrote um, a number of books and, and named a lot of chapters um, within that talking about her, her battles with mental health. So the way that, the way that they said that she passed away, it wasn't from, you know, illness. It was from the disease. And that was interesting to me. What does that say to you? How do we interpret uh, that? Without, with absolute pure speculation that it was either an assisted suicide or she chose to do it this way. But it right. could have just been the, the health effects of the depression. Yep. You know, I certainly, I, I've got no inside knowledge whatsoever yeah. any more than you do. Um, but, you know, for all I know, I'm going back to what she wrote in her book. There were weeks when she didn't get out of bed um, yeah. back when she was battling depression. Um Obviously, that has long-term effects, you know, and so it says that uh, it says that it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't really a happy, uh, a happy last batch of days for her. That's for sure. 
Um, but last month appears with her daughter. Uh, and then, and we're also hearing that a, a fall tour was planned. It, it certainly yeah. sounded as if things were on, on the way up. Yes. And I think that was what surprised everybody. Um, not even two weeks ago, I got the press release from them that they were going to be, um, going out on a North American tour in September. They were going to do the final um, batch of days, even though that, you know, uh, back in like, you know, early 2011, they said that 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 was going to be it for them. But then they kept appearing on on, you know, shows like the Oprah Winfrey Network and and uh, Naomi still acted in various um, television roles, especially on the Lifetime Network and the Hallmark Movie Channel. Um, yeah, and last night they were due to be inducted into the the Country Music Hall of Fame. Um, so seemingly it looks on paper like they needed to hang on and do this and then deal with the future, which makes this all the more kind of strange uh, and worrisome that this happened. This would have been a massive tour. I mean, this because these yeah. guys were huge in their day. Yeah, especially because they were, I think, this generation's... Um, um, leaders when it comes to the Beatles. You know, there, mm. there are certain, you know, you and I have talked a lot about rock music on this show where um, the, you know, the Judd's audience that would be going to this tour, if it would have happened, probably would have been moms and dads who grew up listening to the Judd's and also their kids whose music they're growing up on, but also fans of Taylor Swift of mm. Olivia Rodrigo of tail of, of these um you know Billie Eilish you know fans of real music like country music who want that expression they want that authenticity they want that realness um and they certainly you know the judge certainly gave that to their audience you know they they led a very very open life so it would have been it would have been fascinating to make them and see that victory lap that of their influence hmm. of the last 10 or 15 years it would have been amazing to watch that and country music very different now as it continues evolve to evolve as all music does but i mean you know even watching some of the clips uh yesterday with the big hair and the uh <laughs> you know big suits and the big collars and the big hats and the big uh, rhinestones country music's in a different place now or is it doing full circle again yeah, you know, it, it, it's always a little bit of both. You know, they, they had songs like Girls Night Out and Love is Alive. Um, and mind you, dream. this was this this was the 80s, and so everything was that way anyway, right? So. I, I, right, right, exactly. You know, their albums, Rockin' with the Rhythm. Like, that sounds like Janet Jackson. You know, yeah. that could have sounded like Debbie Gibson back in the, in the 80s yeah. and 90s. So, but, you know, I, 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 I yes, yeah, so you end up with, with you know, Mama, I can't get over him. You know, like those kind of love songs where yeah. you're just heartbroken. But then that's no different from Olivia Rodrigo in driver's license. You know, when she got her driver's license, yeah. she basically stalked her ex-boyfriend. And that was a perfect song for that generation. <laughs> so realistically, you know, a song, a great song is just a great song. And that's why it transcends decades is that every generation can relate back to it. But I think certainly, you know, Look, there are people who watch those Hallmark movies with with Naomi in it that look like Naomi. Like they look like <laughs> yeah, they're from, yeah. you know, 
the 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 southern dixie bell look of mm. of keeping everything clean and tidy and having big hair and getting made up just because they want to and like good for them what about impact on country music that this will make obviously the streams are going to go through the roof but will how will this change or will it as country music observes this passing yeah, certainly the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of goalposts being moved when it comes to country music. We've seen a lot of black artists from that world have massive success, um, you know, singing national anthems at Super Bowls, singing America the Beautiful at various sporting events, winning Grammy Awards um, and winning Emmy Awards and, and, and all sorts of things. We've certainly seen um, the last couple of years, uh, members of the LGBTQIA community um, come out in support of fellow country artists that have come out of the closet per se certainly having little nas x um perform with um you know the country music world for old town road with billy mm. ray cyrus um, yeah. brought a lot of the country music bands into the modern era so i think what will what this will do is put the spotlight on the things that made that mother-daughter duo so amazing. They were ambitious. They were businesswomen. They had amazing stylists. They knew the art of having a video. They knew the art of picking a song. And they certainly knew how to reach their audience. You know, there is probably a book to, um, to read or at least write about the fact that even after they split up, they knew exactly who their audience was. They knew what they were listening mm. to, what shows they were watching, and they kind of just stayed in their spotlight the way that they wanted to. Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator, uh, commentating on the passing of Naomi Judd over the weekend at 76 years of age, hours before being honored at the Country Music Hall of Fame. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. All right, we talked about it on Friday, uh, the big rolling uh, Thunder Convoy, whatever it is, uh, rally, motorcycle rally, what have you, uh, coming into Ottawa. By the time we signed off on Friday at about 6 o'clock, uh, not much was going on. Obviously, activity uh, Friday night and, and into Saturday, and then pretty much it by Sunday. Um, to talk more about all of this and the fallout, backlash, what have you. David Aiken with us, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News. He is with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, doing great. How are you doing? I'm well. I, you know, I know you've been busy with all of this, but your thoughts as you digest this over the course of the weekend, considering the hype and everything before, how was this handled? Is this what happens when you got a plan? Well, I guess there's a few things to, to sort of look at it from different perspectives. First, from the the organizer's perspective is uh, the turnout was okay, uh, you know, but uh, I've been on Parliament Hill since 2005, and, and you know, you're, you're going to see 50 protests at least a year. There might be a couple hundred people. There might be, uh, you know, 15, 16,000 people. Usually every year, the, the annual anti-abortion protest is the biggie, and it happens, uh, actually, it happens usually in early summer, and that's 15, 16,000 people. Completely peaceful, though, and they're only there for really the afternoon. So what do we make of this uh, Freedom Convoy, folks? Um, I'll you stay with the anti-abortion protests. They're there for one reason, to basically make abortion illegal. It's a very clear protest with a very clear objective. 
they do a very good job of that group. The organizers of that group does a very good job of communicating the objectives of the protest to politicians, to media covering it, etc. This Freedom Convoy thing was all over the place. There was no clear objective. It seemed to me, from my standpoint, we, we tried to, we asked lots of people, why are you here? And there was any number of grievances. A lot of it was, uh, we're here because of, quote, you, the fake news. That's what I got in my face. Uh, we're here for veterans. Uh, okay, I'm not really sure what you wanted to do for veterans. Um, there was vague things about vaccine mandates, but mostly it was just, you know, some people who were angry and wanted to have a weekend yelling and screaming at police. There was a big social component to the protesters. We recognize, when I say we, the journalists who work on Parliament Hill recognized a whole lot of the folks we saw for that three weeks back in February. So it was a mm. reunion of sorts for some of the Freedom Convoy participants from February. Um, and it was, as I say, a big social event. Lots of high fives. A lot of people spent the Saturday. It was great weather. Saturday smoking cannabis, uh, drinking beer, and just generally enjoying themselves. Um, but really no focus. So that's and there was obviously a lot fewer uh, participants uh, at the weekend event this weekend than in February. In February, we saw crowds on some of the weekends, uh, 15,000, you know, probably yeah. all around Parliament Hill. I would well, say no more than two or three thousand uh, at its peak this weekend. From the police side, unbelievable difference. The police so much better prepared in Ottawa this time around with the help of the OPP, with the help of the RCMP, at the end of every night, the the uh, Ottawa police, as they said, and they did, they had complete control of streets. There was no occupation. Nobody was camping out. The, the Ottawa police much better prepared this time uh, than last time. And then I guess finally, the other thing was the, the occupation in February Yes, the, the people who arrived did want to be peaceful and not really engage, whatever, and maybe because the police weren't pushing them very hard, but it was pretty peaceful right up until the end. And even at the end of it, when the police had to move in, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, there was a few people get pushed around, et cetera, but it wasn't that crazy. This time around, though, the people who showed up on Friday night, they wanted to mix it up, and they did. And seven people got arrested right off the bat on Friday night, many of them charged with assaulting police. And we saw it. You know, they're just, they just wanted to basically, you know, push a police officer. They called police Nazis this time around and were yelling and screaming at them. Uh, on Saturday, right outside my office, some guy from Alberta, he had a Alberta plates on his car, tried to run a police convoy. Police quickly grabbed him and arrested him. And it turns out this individual was someone who was here back in February, got arrested then and was told by a judge, don't come back. He's now violated or charged with violating his bail conditions. So he can expect some time in jail. So there, there were some key differences this time around than February. Uh, the big difference being it was shorter. It was much less focused, fewer people, and the police clearly had uh, much better control of the situation. It's funny, David. Many are saying, what was the message? What was the point? Why did they come here? Uh, you know, what was the protest all about? And, you know, why do people protest? They want change. Do you think it was just that? It's as simple as that? We're, you know, we're looking for, like, you're, you made the comparison to the uh, abortion demos and such, but is it just not change? I guess so. I mean, they, uh, you know, I, I would say that uh, by, I, I would be hard pressed to find someone in that crowd who is a supporter of the Trudeau government. Um, 
But on the other hand, in February, I would be hard pressed to find someone who was an Aaron O'Toole supporter. The only real partisan stuff we saw, we saw the odd Pierre Polyev supporter back in February and a lot of stuff for the People's Party of Canada. So, you know, to the extent that they uh, didn't like the election result that we just had, uh, you know, not even what eight months ago, um, I guess they're they're upset. But as we all know, the way our system works is you got to show up at election time. You got to form your own party. That's how we sort of do the change thing. And they really don't, they're not, don't, don't, the people who protested in February and again this weekend don't really seem to have the patience for the hard work that, uh, let's say, Preston Manning did over 10 years to form up a new small C conservative party and that, you know, handed it off to Stephen Harper, who won government. There's no sense that this group has the patience, the smarts, et cetera, to, uh, be interested in that. And so, yeah, I guess there, there was some interest in change. Um, but again, it's um, the, the, those groups, uh, be they on the left or the right, that I've seen over the years that really do want to affect change. You have to be really smart about it. You have to build coalitions. It happens through a government process. Um, you need to have buy-in from your opponents. You just can't stand there and call people names and expect that something is going to change. You know what I'm saying? David Aiken with us, chief political correspondent with Global News, talking about the rolling thunder convoy in Ottawa. And make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. David, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Hey, no problem. You too. Cheers. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. A big day in Hamilton today. Uh, Keenan Loomis has kicked off his candidacy for mayor of Hamilton. Uh, everything opening up for people to register uh, register for municipal politics. Uh, Keenan registering this afternoon and then speaking out in front of City Hall. He's with us now. Keenan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am doing great, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very good. Uh, first day that you can register to be a mayoral candidate. You're like first in line, uh, I guess, first day. Why not, right? Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, the thing is, you can't do really anything um, until uh, this. Uh, the definition of campaigning is both uh, strict and um, uh, really nebulous at the same time. And mm-hmm. um, so obviously, like, you know, we can't even buy a web domain, for example, because that would be a campaign expenditure. So you've you got to get out there on the very first day so that we can uh, get all of that up and running very soon over the next uh, little bit. So uh, some chatter around City Hall, because obviously a lot of people there signing up for municipal politics, and it's great to see uh, people interested in serving in this way. There was some chatter about uh, them being removed from the forecourt and being made to stand on the sidewalk. Anything you can add to that, to the story, why that was? Well, you know, the the city just keeps on giving us uh, ammunition. It's uh, it's really incredible. On a day like this, a special day for so many folks that are looking to put forth their names for uh, candidates uh, in uh, council and uh, me as mayor. Uh, we are prevented from being able to engage with the public and with the media in front of City Hall. Um, and, you know, push to the, the sidewalks as well uh, when we are having a, a huge discussion in this town about uh, Vision Zero and uh, traffic fatalities and all of that. So we got through it. We rolled with it, uh, as we always do. But, uh, you know, we had uh, a lot of traffic that we had to contend with as well. So, it, you know, it, again, it's a, it's a typical day at City Hall. It's unfortunate, but um, we are off and running. Now, some are asking that you were allowed to speak in others' word. Is that accurate? Um, well, we had received confirmation uh, earlier, uh, and so before today, 
that it was uh, going to be no problem. But then we had uh, we were monitoring social media over the course of the day, and we just decided, you know, it doesn't matter what sort of direction we've received. Um, we certainly don't want to make that uh, the, the story today. The story is about launching our candidacy, and so we're going to stand on the uh, sidewalk in solidarity with those who were pushed to the sidewalk earlier. All right, last question on this then. Uh, so it is, and I'm just trying to decipher the reason for this, and we haven't heard from the city yet, but is it because we you need a permit to do this, you had one, others don't? Is that accurate? No, no. Uh, hmm. We didn't have a permit. We didn't need one. We weren't using amplifying equipment. Um, so I, I, I still don't completely understand it but again um i don't want that to be part of this all right this is actually a, a joyous day scott all right let's move on um yeah. so obviously uh you're a transplanted hamiltonian uh this city has made huge strides in the last decade or so what's the next stage where do you see this going yeah well uh, as i said today I, I married into hamilton and uh i mm. uh i fell in love with this city uh very quickly and many of us have was, by the way <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I fell in love with a girl, and then I fell in love with the city uh, that she's from. And um, you know, it, it, you're, you're right. Like we've been a part of the uh, the Renaissance as uh, you know, the CEO, of the, the Chamber of Commerce, um, the business community has been a big part of uh, the revival of the city. And um, the thing is, you know, it's it's been almost in spite of uh, of City Hall, and so um, we have never. Uh, need to change more in the city than than we uh, do right now. You know, we have a lot of challenges. As you know, homelessness affordability is a big issue, uh, infrastructure a big issue, and uh, and people aren't being listened to. And we also have so many great opportunities in, ahead of us. And, you know, we need visionary leadership uh, in City Hall to be able to take advantage of those opportunities. Um, as you know, uh, we're going to be constructing LRT uh, within the next couple of years, uh, nobody has done more research on um, how to mitigate the impacts of LRT construction uh, in this community than I have, uh, because we've been so concerned about how it is going to impact uh, the businesses. And so we've been studying this for years. So we need uh, somebody who understands that um, as we go through uh, that process as well. So, you know, where do we go from here? Well, we, we really need to, to work hard at meeting uh, the provincial growth targets. I think that's something that we can all agree on, um, which means that in 25 years, we're going to be a city of about 800,000 people, uh, which is exciting. And so, you know, it's it's really how about how we go about growing um, from here uh, to, uh, over the, the next 25 years. And intensification uh, is going to be really important to, to that because that helps people afford to be able to live in the city. I'm really concerned about uh, my kids' future. Um, and it's not just our dangerous streets. It's a, um, I don't want them living with me for the rest of my life. Uh, so <laughs> you I know, you bring up out. an interesting... You, you yeah. bring an interesting point here, Keenan, though, because the city really has changed. I mean, I remember the time a time when we were promoting waterfalls, trying to get anybody interested in coming here. Now it's quite the opposite problem. So how do you balance that? How do you make yeah. sure, you know, Hamilton catches up to where it needs to be, but as you mentioned, keep it affordable for everybody? Well, it's about smart development. You know, we're not unique. Um, we're, though we're going through this, you know, there's a lot to be learned from other communities as well. And that's what we've done, uh, for example, on LRT, right? There's a lot of other communities that have gone through it 
And so, um, you know, you just look at what they've done, the lessons that they have learned, um, the good things that they've uh, implemented as well. And so, you know, uh, it really is about growing smartly along our transit lines. As you know, I'm not just a supporter of the Beeline LRT, but the whole BLAST network as well, which is five transit lanes uh, lines that are going to feed into every corner of this community. And that provides a ton of amazing opportunity for us. And so, again, it's the, the decisions we make now are going to be how we get um, to that goal of uh, accommodating basically 100,000 new households over the course of the next 25 years. And, you know, that might be um, uh, a, a lot uh, to some, a little chaotic, if you will, but I thrive on change, and I think that that's really important for the city. Uh, and to be able to dig out of the infrastructure deficit, there's only one way to dig out of a $3 billion infra- infrastructure deficit, and that's to meet those provincial growth targets so that we have 100,000 new households contributing to the tax base. Keenan Loomis with us, Hamilton mayoral candidate, registering today, and we'll have the rest of the candidates on as they register. Keenan, thanks so much for the time. Congratulations on making the commitment. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. I look forward to connecting with all Hamiltonians over the next few months. It's going to be fun. All right, Rolling Thunder Convoy rolled into Ottawa and then pretty much out the other side. It's amazing what good planning will do. Uh, How did he survive it all? Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and he is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, Scott, I'm okay. I survived it because I left town <laughs> Saturday night. Not because of Rolling Thunder, but because I had a couple of days. And I'm here in Newfoundland, fitting you played Great Big Sea to see my uh, to see my mother. So, well, yeah, isn't Rolling that nice? Thunder, uh, as we were joking, was a bit of a thunderclap, not a storm. I think the final tallies I saw this morning were ten people arrested, uh, eight, nearly nine hundred tickets for all manner of things, and what was it, 45 vehicles that were were towed. So I was around Saturday. I didn't leave till Saturday evening. Uh, so, so, you know, the, the, as I said to you on Friday evening when we last spoke, there, there was obviously a heavy visible police presence that remained on Saturday. So some of the bikers running around the town on uh, uh, on Saturday as well. Um, other than a fairly uh, raucous Friday evening on Rideau Street with some protesters, it generally seemed to be uneventful, at least for the residents of the city. And I think people in Ottawa are glad about that. Is that uh, the difference when you've got uh, a preparation plan in place as opposed to not? Uh, obviously, this was more police exercise than program and or, or than protest rather, but the police were ready in one side, out the other. It looked like it was, you know, pretty well executed in that respect. Yes, but I also I think yeah, absolutely. But I think it was also a very well, I don't know, a very different, but it was a different group uh, of uh, of people. I think they well, it's three days uh, three days old as opposed to three weeks old, which I think has a lot. Yeah, to do with it. Uh, and uh, the the composition of it was uh, apparently different. Although there were one person I know had been arrested for breaching conditions that uh, he had. Uh, been, had been laid upon him after the Freedom Convoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they did their motorcycle rally Saturday morning, and then they had a, a, a an afternoon of speaking on Parliament Hill, and then I believe a church service Sunday morning. As I say, I was gone by then. 
Um, and uh, it, it, it generally uh, was, uh, well, not generally, it was very much more uneventful than uh, what, uh, what had happened uh, in February and March. Uh, obviously, the Emergency Act not needed here. Does this in any way change the inquiry for the use of the Emergency Act back in the winter? I don't. I don't know that it does. I think it. It just. Uh, it. It. It will bring more questions. Um, and because as you. As in, why did we? As in, why did we need it? As opposed to just planning like they did this time. Yeah, uh, well, again, I think it gets, I think what we need to see, what we need to see through the inquiry, and we talked about this, is what the intelligence said about the people that were there, uh, and the difference in, um, in, in the, in the attendees, uh, and what their intentions were. I think the, the, uh, organizers of this event, you know, they were much more public about what their intentions were, that they seemed disorganized in having a common theme. Uh, but they certainly didn't seem to have uh, the same um, malintent that uh, that the organizers of the various organizers of the other event did. So again, that I think we have to get at what the intelligence report said, what the difference was, and clearly, look, yeah, the police learned, right? As I said to you, when I drove my son to school on Friday morning, even then at seven thirty, eight o'clock, they were up in all the key cho- um, uh, choke points in and out of the downtown area with the the concrete barricades and with the uh, ever-present officers. And that wasn't the case before the Freedom Convoy rolled into town in February. Uh, Many are asking, and and almost um, to the point of ridicule, um, you know, and I I would say at their own peril, saying uneducated, uh, don't seem to have a focus. What's the point here? Why did they come? Why are they protesting? Mandates gone. They're very disorganized. That one person says one thing, one says another. Um, My question is, whenever there's a protest, why do they do that? Why do people protest generally? Generally because they're unhappy with something and they want change. Does it have to be as focused on one common ground as the fact that people are just getting riled up and just want change? They're, they're, whether it's, it, it's government overreach what, coming out of a pandemic, whether it's mandates, whatever. Um, is, are, are the Liberal Party trying to push this and and you know i'm being biased here obviously but trying to push this to any other cause other than people just want change and you know after three elections they're unhappy with the prime minister is this about the prime minister as opposed to any of these other issues do people just want well change? I, I think when you have protests unless they're very specific to an issue and this was very general you're going to catch all elements of people's anger and discontent so yeah. On Saturday, I was at a Canadian tire near the protest staging area of, in the same staging area of last time. So I saw a few of the people there who were with the protesters. They had those lovely shirts on, uh, saying how much they love Justin Trudeau. Pardon my sarcasm. So my son got mm-hmm. to see those. Thankfully, he's only just beginning to read, so F words aren't <laughs> common to him uh, yet. Although he he admonishes his father sometimes when I swear in the car and tells my mother about all of that. So that's a whole other side story. 
Um, I, I saw others with different signs about things that were irritating to them driving around the city. Look, I think protests catch all, as I said, unless they're very scripted and directed. But yes, I think governments, particularly this one, want to say, look, this what this disorganization says is these people aren't people you really should pay attention to and they're not, you know, they're they're not serious people and so yeah, they try to do that to diminish it um and and to take the focus off the folk part of the focus which is the frustration with the the Trudeau government and that was yeah, I mean that that that's been evident in in whatever the last couple of protests have truly been about. You know, I was watching this, I don't know if this would have been Friday night or early Saturday morning, um, and, and I'm watching news coverage of this, and, and you might know who this counselor was, but I, I believe it was a counselor uh, that stood up in, in, in front of the camera and said to the reporter, look at them, they're just not in tune with the rest of Ottawa, they're angry. Yeah. Um, is Is that living in a bubble? Is that... Is it they're well, not in tune Ottawa, with the rest of Ottawa, or is it Ottawa is not in tune with the rest of the country? Well, I think Ottawa's got a little PTSD from the last go around because it, it was yeah. not fun. It, it, it and understandable uh, on so many levels. And I think you know the odd the challenge Ottawa now has is well, you're the national capital, and you got to get over the fact of what happened in February, and that was a whole other different thing. If you're continuously being upset and whining a little bit about protests, maybe you should find another place to live because that happens when you're in in the national capital. But right now, a lot of those councillors are they can pretty much say what they want because the the memory of of February is still is still very present. But to the rest of the country, it probably makes it, Ottawa look like a bunch of whiners, and you know that's not a foreign stereotype for people looking at Ottawa. So really quickly, does this fall on the shoulders of the police chief then, since it went off this weekend without a hitch for the most part? Well, I suspect now if he applied to be the permanent chief, based on this weekend's performance Mm. and his previous performance, he'd he'd get the job. And that may or may not have been on the front of his mind. I don't know if he has the aspirations to be the permanent chief or he just wants to go out on a high. Don't know. Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, the fallout of the Rolling Thunder Convoy through Ottawa. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Enjoy the rock. Thanks, buddy. Talk to you soon. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You don't have to go very far to notice that uh, prices are going through the roof, whether you're filling up at the gas station, whether you're going into the grocery store, whether you're even going out to now that we can go to restaurants and help to uh, stimulate the hospitality industry, which has been hurting for the last two years. Bang, you notice it. It is big time. And we are seeing a, a lot of increases right the way across the board. Uh, so how do we balance this between inflation and rapidly increasing uh, interest rates? I remember uh, it seems like for 20, uh, 15 years, 18 years, we've been discussing how long can rates stay where they are historically low. And then this becomes the new norm. Any sort of uh, rate increase at all seems like a massive shock to the system, but not historically, just certainly where we've been. Interesting column in the Globe and Mail, uh, and that is by David Parkinson, and he is the economics columnist there. Uh, the the headline reads, Rapid Rate Hikes Critical to Break Rising Inflation Expectations. He says, David Parkinson is with us now from the Globe and Mail. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. How are you doing? 
I'm doing good. Thanks so much. Should the Bank of Canada raise these rates a little quicker than uh, what they did? Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty, but would earlier have been better? Could they have made that decision? Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things that could be debated for quite a while. It does look as if they were a little slow off the mark. They, it, you, you got to go back a little bit, I guess, in history, not that far, but just you know, go back a couple of years and when we entered this uh, COVID nineteen crisis. Um, economists, both within the Bank of Canada and pretty much everywhere else, were pretty convinced that we were going into a deep recession that uh, that was at risk of going into a depression. And so they they threw a lot of uh, of strong policy measures at that, and one of them was cutting interest rates down as low as they possibly could, and basically promising to keep them there until they were absolutely certain the economy had recovered. So once you've said that, and once you've committed to that, basically you you are kind of saying we're going to wait we're going to wait longer than we normally would when we see the economic recovery because we want to make absolutely sure it's here. And, you know, we've obviously had a lot of different waves of COVID since then. And so that was one of the concerns that the bank had all along. It kept on waiting. And, and, you know, once we got into the Omicron wave at the beginning of the year, sort of the end of last year, the beginning of this year, it was one of the things where the bank was now seeing that the economy was very close to fully recovered, but we were in the middle of another wave of COVID. And so they said, okay, we're, we're going to wait a little bit longer. As it turned out, they probably should have started raising rates December, maybe January at the latest. Instead, their first move was in March, and now they are trying to play catch up as inflation has kind of got a little bit out of hand. So would it really make a huge difference if they'd moved in December instead of March? We'll only know historically, you know, years from now, we'll have a better sense of that. But right now, it definitely looks like they need to catch up. And obviously, you know, you look at the inflation numbers, it's obviously gotten a little out of their control. So when you have to play catch up, how how high do you raise these each time? Is it a quarter point? Is it a half a point? And what about the collateral damage that might have by because they've been historically low for so long? Uh, you start hicking, clicking this into high gear that that people there's going to be collateral damage. People are going to suffer. Yeah, and we I mean we haven't seen it's been literally decades since we've seen the bank yeah. need to move as aggressively as they're now talking about moving. And so we don't we're a little bit you know. We're a little bit lost as to, as to how exactly what the impact is going to have, and and so are they. Um, but yeah, what we're probably going to see now is they did increase their rate by a half percentage point um, in early April. Um, they are probably going to go by at least another half percentage point at the beginning of June, um, and then you know probably uh, the same kind of thing probably in mid July, and then and at that point. Once they get to sort of two, two and a half percent, which is we're at one percent right now. So once they get, and this is just the bank rate, mind you. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. lending rates are, are are a different number. The lending rates tend to tend to be based on where the where the bank's official lending rate is. That's the rate they lend overnight to big banks, basically. But that is that's kind of the standard on which all the other rates are based. But yeah, we can probably expect that once they get to about two or two and a half percent on their official policy rate then they'll they may take a a step back then and and take a look and see what impact it's actually having and 
I mean, we can expect we're already seeing that kind of impact, especially on the housing market, which is, mo- you know, ob- for obvious reasons, highly sensitive to interest rates. Uh, inflation, you're hearing that all uh, all the time, uh, all through the media. People are seeing it when they go out to purchase, realizing they have less purchasing power. Some are old enough to remember this of the 1970s and then the extraordinary high interest rates of the 1980s. Is it different this time? Yeah, we can't be that old, can we? Yes, Scott. There's no way we. There's no way you and I can remember that. But our grandparents, right? They told us. Um, Absolutely. Anyway, no, no, no. I mean, you know, we there, there is a difference here, and of course, you you, you referenced at the start of this the, a column that uh, that we published the other day in the Globe. That was that that was quoting David Dodge, who used to be the uh, the Bank of Canada's uh, governor back in uh, in the early part of uh, of of the two thousands. Uh, and uh, and Mr. Dodge was was also around in the 70s and and played some uh, some major roles back when we were trying to control inflation in other ways back then and learned some lessons. But uh, but yeah, there are there are some significant differences. But a, a key to this, and it's it's something that's a little hard to grasp. But inflation is a very psychological thing, and one of the things that central banks have learned over the last few decades is that if you can convince people that inflation will stay low, then the fact they are convinced makes it stay low because people have expectations that prices won't go up by more than a couple of percentage points every year. And because they expect that, they adjust their behavior accordingly. And especially when they're making um, when they're making wage demands from their employers. Now, once you start seeing prices, once you said, as you said, your purchasing power starts starts getting away from you and you actually feel like you're suffering a in, in reality a wage cut in real terms um, because your wages are only going up 1% or 2% and your prices are going up 5 or 6% um, or more depending on what you're buying, um, then you start adjusting your wage demands. And when everybody starts doing that, then you get into what they call a wage price spiral and you start seeing wages mm. going up by 5 or 6% a year, which means that the employers push mm. up their prices 5 or 6% a year. And then we get into this inflationary spiral that's sort of self-perpetuating. That's what the Bank of Canada is trying really hard to avoid. And that's what Mr. Dodge was talking about in the column that you referred to that I wrote the other day, Um, that the bank needs to act quickly and aggressively to convince people that we are not, they're not going to let this happen. Hmm. David Parkinson. back hard at it. Got to let you go here. We're out of time. David Parkinson with his economics columnist for the Globe and Mail. How do you balance the rapid rising interest rates with inflation? David, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Hey, it's my pleasure. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We're continuing uh, continuing to watch uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and many feeling incredibly helpless. I think we're on like day 60... 67 now is that what it is remember when many said this would be over in no time and this is just it's just agonizing to watch uh, people running for their lives and if we if you've watched any of the footage of mariupol and that steel uh, plant uh, complex that is there and where people are trying to hide out trying to get those people evacuated now uh, what are the chances of getting them all out alive let's bring in Stephen Sadman, norman patterson school of international affairs at carlton university director of the canadian defense and security network and is with us now Stephen, thanks for the time i hope you're well i'm well scott how are you doing 
Uh, good, thanks so much. Uh, you know, we're seeing just these unbelievable images. There's virtually nothing left of of this city, uh, the steel plant where people are, are still held up. Is there, uh, I mean, we're talking about uh, getting them out in, in, in security corridors and such, but is there any way these people are going to get out alive? Uh, some of them may. Uh, the fact that, that some got out is promising, particularly with the help of the United Nations. It really depends, of course, on the Russians and what they're willing to allow. Uh, and so if the Russians are willing to allow for some of these people to be evacuated, then that'll happen. If the Russians don't, then it'll be too risky and they'll have to stay in place. Obviously, many uh, had predicted if they were going to do this, it, it, they could have been able to do this. They would have done it earlier. The slow speed of this, what is that saying to you, especially when we hear uh, more fortification coming from the U.S.? Uh, Nancy Pelosi, other U.S. officials meeting with Zelensky uh, the other day. What are your thoughts about where this is and where it can go? Well, I think this is going to be a grind. I think the Russians are going to keep on trying to keep this war going because they don't want to declare that they've lost it. And the Ukrainians are to keep fighting because it's their territory and their people who are at risk. And the big question is how long the Russians can sustain this. The Ukrainians are facing a high price for this, but they're not going to face mutinies. They're not going to face resistance. But sending a poorly prepared soldiers into, into the, and poorly led soldiers into the, into the grind may lead to some problems for the Russians. So I think it's going to last quite a bit longer because I just don't see either side willing to negotiate at this time. What about the threat of nuclear weaponry? We've heard Putin use that. Um, you know, again, this is dragging out. This is taking him longer. Many have have used the term, you know, becoming a cornered rat. How long before he pulls this trigger? Is this an option for him? It's not an option for him, and he's not going to do it anytime too soon. Mm. Uh, he he wants to stay in power. He wants to stay alive. Uh, if he uses nuclear weapons, then it'll be the end of his regime. It'll be the end of Russia. Um, or at least there's a great risk for that. And so I just can't see him doing anything that foolhardy. Um, people are going to say he's crazy, but he ha- he wants to live. He wants to stay in power. And a nuclear war would not really be all that conducive for him staying in power. Uh, what about the fortification that we're now seeing again from the United States? Many are asking why all these countries didn't do this very, right at the very beginning. Uh, there's lots of reasons for that. I guess we could debate that forever. Will this? What does this do for Russia? I mean, uh, can they hold this off? Uh, how do you? What is a win for either side? I guess. Well, that's a big question. What is a win for the either side? Uh, with the Russians engaged in systemic uh, atrocities, it makes it much harder for Zelensky to make a deal with the Russians that would leave some territory and some people in Russian hands. Uh, and so that's going to make it very hard to, to come to some agreement. Uh, the, the Ukrainians would like to have their territory back. And the question would be then, does that include all the Donbass region? Does it include Crimea? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. For the Russians, you know, they would like to be able to declare some kind of victory. And whether that's having a, a chunk, keeping a chunk of the Donbass region Keeping a chunk of uh, uh, keeping Crimea is obviously something that they they would hold on to, but that's the problem. Why there's wars? There's not a deal that they can have right now that both sides can find to be acceptable, uh, or at least something close to being acceptable. So as long as the Russians uh, don't exhaust it entirely, then they're going to keep fighting over this because there's not really much space in between for them to come to a deal. Still, lots of support for Putin in Russia. There is support. We don't know how real the support is. Uh, 
imagine if all of Canada was basically being fed the same news story. Um, we kind of see that with like half the United States right now. And that's what's going on with Russia, which is they're getting one side of the story. They're not getting a lot of news. You've heard stories of Ukrainians calling their relatives back in Russia and the relatives in Russia denying that there's a war going on. Um, hmm. And so it's, you know, disinformation, control of the information, propaganda. This all matters quite a bit. But what they can't avoid is the fact that there'll be body bags coming home. There'll be families that will have lost their sons, their daughters, their brothers, their sisters, their fathers, their mothers. And that will change things. That will cause uh, some political upset. And Putin has not made himself a fan amongst his fellow oligarchs because they're losing a lot of money in this whole process. So this is going to get very tricky for, for Putin. And his problem is domestic, not so much international. Stephen Sadman with us, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, Director of Canadian Defence and Security Network. Stephen, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. It's amazing when uh, a couple of different governments at different levels and even different political stripes get together, and uh, it's amazing what can happen. We saw EB uh, announcements out of Ford, General Motors with the province and the feds. Now, uh, one with Stellantis, who, uh, of course, took over Chrysler. And the whole deal here, out in Windsor, a billion dollars, half a billion from each uh, level of government in order to help them retool to make EVs. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm great, thank you. Glad to be with you. Boy, another big announcement like this. It's amazing what happens when two different levels of government or three different levels of whatever government work together, what they can accomplish. What are your thoughts on all of this? Well, it, it, a couple of things. First, it's clear that uh, the North American car industry is giving a vote of confidence to Ontario, that they'd like to see cars made here. That's even though uh, there was this plan from the Biden government to only support vehicles that were assembled in the United States. That plan never got an approval. And even though at some point maybe it'll be revived, these uh, big car companies are still saying we see a value of assembling those cars here. I think it's also worth noting that this investment, and you're correct, it's a half a billion from both the federal government and the province, uh, is not the total investment. The total investment is roughly $3.6 billion, $1 billion of which is uh, our government's, but the other $2.6 billion is the car company itself. So they are supporting mm-hmm. the car company, but it's not totally based on, a, on our dollars. And so I think if you're worried about you know, the private sector getting subsidies from the federal government, the provincial government... It's because we're playing against um, states in the United States that would give away land, they would give away tax holidays. And so instead of that, we're forced to compete through these kinds of, of subsidies. But it's nonetheless, it keeps those jobs here, protects the ones we have, and maybe adds some new ones in a new industry. Are you surprised considering, I remember talking to you, Marvin, when they were closing down Oshawa, and that was the end of, of everything, and yep. then all of a sudden government's working with unions, and uh, my goodness, look where we are now. Well, we, we have to go back and give credit where credit is due, even though at this moment he's a bit disgraced, but Jerry Diaz, mm-hmm. uh, who, who was a guiding force of what used to be known as the Canadian Auto Workers, now it's Unifor, he, uh, during the last round of negotiations, sought Uh, not necessarily wage increases, not necessarily benefit increases, but promises from those big three automakers to expand their footprint or at least keep a big footprint here. I don't think when he started, he thought he'd see Oshawa 
retooled and used the way it's now going to be used for electric vehicles. But his uh, force out there then led to something to break. And I can't tell you what exactly that was. But fortunately, we're seeing these companies see the wisdom of staying in Ontario. And then Doug Ford, you know, as a conservative in the province, he used to complain about those tax and spend liberals throwing money around. He's seen the light somehow and said, well, I think there is a greater advantage to keeping those jobs here. Interestingly, uh, his point person on this, Vic Fideli, was asked at least on three separate occasions today, does this mean the government, provincial government, is also going to start talking about subsidizing electric vehicle purchases for consumers, perhaps the way they do it in Quebec, perhaps the way it was planned in the United States? And the answer was no. This provincial government wants to support jobs and workers and construction and production, but they aren't interested in giving out more subsidies. We'll see if that tune changes over the course of the next four weeks of the provincial election campaign. What are your thoughts on that, Marvin, uh, to giving the money to the businesses to retool and create jobs and such, keep the industry alive, which was virtually dying uh, not too long ago, as opposed to actually giving people discounts to buy the cars? To me, and, and maybe I'm oversimplifying this, it's like the argument, don't give people fish, teach them how to fish and give them the equipment to do so. Right. Well, a couple of things. You know, uh, if I go back four or five years ago, uh, electric vehicles were the odd bird. Less than 1% of all vehicles sold were, were electric, and they still are down in the single digits, although they've dramatically improved from where they were. The belief is now that there's a momentum that's going to force us all to switch probably over the next eight years so that by the year 2030, none of the vehicles being sold will be gas powered. They'll all be electric or maybe in the worst case they're hybrids where they use a bit of a gasoline along with electricity so i think the feeling of government is i don't need to incentivize people that's going to happen just on its own what i need to do is make sure these vehicles are being produced here rather than imported here from other parts of the world tesla would be an interesting example of that teslas are not made in ontario i know the ontario government was hoping to woo tesla here and i'm not sure that's out of the question but We'd rather keep the companies we've got building those vehicles here and keeping those jobs rather than simply letting consumers rush off and buy. I don't know if it's all going to happen the way they have it planned, but I think it's, uh, they've gambled and I think they gambled correctly. Why give uh, the customer a discount on something there is a demand for? Yeah, that's I mean, that's the argument. Uh, uh, there was a lot of false information around electric vehicles. For instance, I've had this argument on Facebook with various people who say, oh, look at how high electricity prices are. It's going to cost me a fortune to, to do this. And meanwhile, if you talk to people who actually have bought a Tesla and an electric vehicle, they talk about how much money they're saving, especially now yeah. that gasoline is flirting with $1.80, $1.90 a liter, $2 in the case of diesel. And they're all saying, you know, I, I don't need that incentive. Thank you very much. Now, the other thing that's happened is economy of scale. Those first Teslas were nearly $100,000 a piece. Doug hmm. Ford's argument was, I don't feel I need to subsidize somebody who's prepared to drop $100,000 on a car. But as they produce more units and they get more efficient at producing more units, the price per unit starts to come down. And certainly uh, Stellantis today for GM, they're not talking about selling you $100,000 cars. Those cars will be roughly in the same ballpark as the gasoline-powered vehicles today. And therefore, I don't think, again, you need that same level of subsidization to get people to buy into being green.
All right, uh, last question, and we've only got a minute left, and this is not on the auto industry, but it is transportation. A lot of chatter floating around about the cost of transit. Is that the reason more people are not riding? In other words, let me give you this hypothetical situation. If we offered transit uh, to people of Hamilton for, say, free, would we, we still, would we see a huge spike in, in ridership? You know, it's, it's a very difficult question to answer because we have to take a look at transit before COVID and now with COVID. There is still a significant chunk of our population who, if they could stay at home and work, would like to stay at home and work. They are just so worried about being exposed to COVID. And mass transit, where we're all on one bus, that's where the economy comes from, but that's also where the potential for contact comes from. So I think at the moment, the problem is more about feeling safe riding the bus necessarily than the cost of a bus or the cost of an LRT or a GO train or something like that. The other one is convenience. There's absolutely no doubt when you talk to people, leaving from my doorstep, going to the doorstep where I have to visit is direct and great as opposed to taking two buses or three buses as we go. Therefore, I'm not sure free transit's going to make any difference at all. I think, I think the better thing is to reassure people about the safety let them get that security back. Probably will be after the summer. Hopefully by the fall when we get the first cold weather, people will once again feel comfortable riding transit. But that's also going to require businesses to have people working not from home but from their place of work. And the whole commuting culture, uh, Scott, you're well aware of the uh, the underground network in Toronto, the path they call it. Mm. It's a ghost town at the moment. Businesses are struggling to survive where not that long ago, millions of commuters came through it every day. It just takes a while to come back after the pandemic. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, talking about transit and Ontario's EV industry. Marvin, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley joins us now, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. He is with us now. Scott, I hope you're doing well. It is Monday. We're all doing well, aren't we? We're up with any <laughs> fluids, and, you know, it's all good. Hey, you know what I did this weekend? I, well, like, I had this uh, honey-do list to do, and I was doing everything from, you know, uh, plastering cracks and holes in walls and stuff, and, um, you know, all kinds of, you know, stuff that you never want to do and, and you're doing. And then my wife says to me, well, why don't you clean out the closet? And it's like, well, no, I'm in between job two and three. I don't have time for this one. And she's on a tear because uh, the people from one of the charities called and said, yeah, uh, well, do you have a pickup? Yeah, we'll, we'll leave that outside. So now the mad dash is to get rid of everything. Uh, and I, I went away from my plastering and grabbed a green garbage bag and within uh, 20 minutes had filled an entire bag and it barely even looks like I made a dent. And here's the reason why. The first thing I grabbed and I said, do I throw this out? And it was a beautiful uh, Hamilton Bulldogs jersey with my name on the back, but it was from the days when they were the farm team uh, for the Montreal Canadiens. And immediately my son and my my no, no, you can't throw that out. Well, then what the, what, what do you start, what do you do next? So, yeah, one of those days where you had to do the big house clean out. Scott, so we just had a, uh, my, my father-in-law has, um, had to move in to get some care, and so mm-hmm. we've been doing that with his house. And yeah, it's huge. It, you know what? It is a reminder, and my wife and I have tried to do this over the years because it's been a few times over the years where we say, if something ever happened to us, what kind of disaster are we leaving our kids? Now, the, the whole house <laughs> is in good order. 
we don't have it, but the basement, you, ever, you always yeah. end up putting stuff in the basement. It's in the and hidden so, nooks and crannies. Well, so a, a few years ago, we went out and bought like 10 of those big plastic bins. Yeah, and that said, doesn't okay, help. Let's put, let's put the stuff in there. And what doesn't fit in here? So we put two things. We've got to be able to fit it in here. And if it doesn't, it's got to have a really good reason that we keep it. And if we haven't used something in like three years, then we're not going to use it. So, of course, we're going to get rid of that. Well, you want to know something? We, we did a magnificent job of cleaning out a few years ago. And I go back down to the basement now and go, wait a second. It's expanding. It's breeding. If the stuff yes. down there, it, it yes. we've somehow gone back where we've got to do this whole process again. And the most, and the worst part, and I don't know if you have this to deal with because you're, well, you got, I mean, your kids are probably there. We did over the years, like every parent, keep the stuff that they brought home from school. That's what happened this weekend. Same thing. And then, you know what? You feel like a failure as a human being if you throw out your five-year-old son's painting he brought home saying, I love you, Daddy. Yes. There's 4,000 of them, but every one of them may as well be a Picasso, and you feel horrible if you throw one of them out. Mm -hmm. So we've got bags of paintings (laughs) that you want to know what the kids will do when we go? I just got a note from Peggy Chapman from the Bulldogs, and she's like, ouch! So there you go again. You know, I didn't throw out the jersey. I kept it. It's still up there. But yeah, like, you're, like you said, it, uh, it, 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 it multiplies. And my wife has a tendency of cleaning out one room, but shoving it all into another. So it, it's just like, well, now what do we do with this? What's so this? I've got a hint for you, Scott. I've got a secret, uh, I've got a secret way to do this. Sit down on a Saturday afternoon before you start and watch an episode of two on whatever channel it is of Hoarders. Oh, man. And you will be motivated to get rid of everything because it's suddenly now, you know, I really probably don't need that three-year-old can of pork and beans that's still down in the closet downstairs or whatever else. Like, it, you, it's amazing how once you see the worst-case scenario, how a lot of stuff you go, yeah, we don't need that. We can, we can do without that. We can get rid of that. Um, it, but it is, it is a, it is a mass, whenever you get down to it, yeah. it is a massive, massive job. And one other thing, whichever of you, whether it's you to your wife or your wife to you, whichever one is not the one who came up with the idea is really not happy that the other one did. <laughs> now you're roped into this. Thing. The other one is highly motivated and you're like, do, um, there goes my weekend now. There goes my whole weekend of cleaning yeah. something out. And, you know, I mean, the only thing I ended up with, and, you know, we're talking about moving out of the family home. We did that with my parents a few years ago. The only thing I ended up with was, was a lot of crap I didn't want and a case of pink eye. So, like, really, what are we doing this for? What are we doing this for? Anyway. Well, and my wife, you know, like, look, we, are, we, we work in mostly my wife because, like, let's be honest, she is the, uh, the person in our family that holds everything together. But, um, well, you know, we keep a clean house, so it's not like it's, insane but when we have had to do the garage i have a dust oh, allergy yeah. when it comes time to clean out the garage forget yeah. about it i'm i'm done for like two days with nothing but snot and coughing and sneezing and everything else and it's like you, you know what we're better off not to get it in the state in the first place except somehow it always manages to get there i hear you scott radley hosting down the garage host of the scott radley show you can hear him after the six o'clock news or read him in your hamilton spectator scott you have fun thanks for the time be well You too, and I'm sure Peggy will happily come and pick up that sweater and put it on display for you.
No, no, it's not. It's not. No way, man. It's not getting out of this house. My son won't have it. All right. Thanks, bud. You take care. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. You know, I didn't think I'd seen a bigger crowd than City Hall until I finally arrived at the gas station. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.